hung the stars like chandeliers, numbered every grain of sand, knows the heart of every man.
Well, let's just pray before uh, Tom comes uh, to preach for us. Heavenly Father, as we've just been reading, uh, as we've just been singing, and no doubt we will be hearing, Jesus is King of Kings forevermore over all things. And Lord, we live in uncertain days. Things seem so out of control. We thank you that we can know the truth that you are over all. We praise you for this. And tonight, Lord, build our faith that we would trust you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Music Group, for leading us in that. That's, uh, I haven't been in a, in a church service like this, um, listening to, to, to worship songs, uh, and it's for a while now, and it's great to, to be part of, part of this. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and uh, we're going to contemplate a passage of Scripture that, that's, that does just make us want to praise the one who is King of Kings forever. You deserve better. You're worth it. Look out for yourself because no one else will. If you do this, you'll get closer to God. You can have a special experience of God, like I have. You need to obey these rules. What do those sentences have in common? They're the wisdom of our world. It's what our world believes. We're taught to look out for ourselves, that we are the most important people in, in our lives and in our own world. And we're taught by different religions um, that we need to obey something. And that's what makes us right with God. Or that we need to have this particular special experience, and that's what's going to bring us closer to God. Now, as a Christian, we might say, well, well we know better, but... We can't often fall into that trap. It's not like we get offered a simple choice every day between God's truth and the world, the, the culture and what the world wants to teach us. We live in a world where we, we feel, even if we don't always know we do, we feel this, this influence that pervades absolutely everything through whether it's what our teachers teach us, our friends talk about with us, the adverts that we see, what we look at on social media, whatever it is, just whatever's in the world permeates everything and, and influences us. It's not a simple, clear-cut choice that we always know this is God's truth and this is the world's ideas. Even in church, we can come across a message that is sometimes worldly, 
And this human wisdom, this philosophy, it can capture our hearts and turn us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace alone. And that's the danger that Paul's writing against in this letter to the Colossian Christians. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That's what Paul is worried about, that these, these young Colossian Christians are in danger of being captured, ensnared by worldly human philosophy. Now, a few verses later, chapter 2, verse 16, we see a, a bit more what this particular philosophy was uh, for them in Colossae at that time. Verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So there must have been people who were judging them because they weren't obeying particular rules, many of them Jewish rules. Two verses later, verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So there were people who were trying to disqualify them because they weren't taking part in their particular mystical, spiritual experiences that somehow got them closer to God. What are the potential philosophies that might capture you? Who might be trying to judge you for not obeying this particular rule? Who might be trying to disqualify you because you haven't had this particular experience? How is Paul going to combat these false teachers? Is he going to talk about how harmful they are? Is he going to try and go through detail by detail how they work and how to avoid them? No. He tells us how great Jesus is. Early on in his letter, at the passage we're looking at this evening, chapter 1, verse 15 and to 23, here we see how great Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If our view of Jesus is big enough, then we're not going to look elsewhere. If we understand Jesus' power and majesty, and love in creation and salvation, then we're not going to be captured by human teaching, however difficult to spot it is. And that, I think, is the reason why he puts these verses early on in his letter, why he talks about Jesus Christ. It's not just that he, he loves Jesus and he wants to talk about how great he is, although that's certainly true, isn't it? But he wants the Colossian Christians to... To it, their minds to be enlarged with how great Jesus is so that they won't be captured by this worldly wisdom. And Paul wants us to grasp two big things about Jesus in these verses. The first is this. Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord. Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord. Supreme means that there's no one higher. Supreme over all creation and supreme over the new creation. Have a look at verses 15 to 18. 
Now, these are verses that would be good to go over slowly. We're not going to do that this evening, but maybe during the week you might find some time to go over them a bit more slowly. The sun, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. We can't see him. But God the Son reveals him to us. If someone were to ask you, have you ever seen God? We might say, no, I haven't. But if I was alive 2,000 years ago living in Palestine, then I would have done. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's the firstborn over all creation. Well, is Paul saying that God the Son was the first to be born? Is he saying that he was created? Well, he can't be saying that because just one verse later, he writes, For in him all things were created. And if all things were created in him, and then verse 16, all things have been created through him, then that means that he himself wasn't created. He is creator. Firstborn um, means something in the Bible. Exodus 4.22, God's people Israel, they're described as the firstborn. Or Psalm 89.27, God speaks about his king and he says this, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I think the point of firstborn is that the firstborn has the rights of inheritance, God the Son has the rights over all creation because he will inherit all of it, just like a firstborn son inherits everything. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch politician and theologian, once said, there's not a square inch in the whole, whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. How can God the Son be called the firstborn? Why does he have the rights over all creation? Because, verse 16, he created everything. Absolutely everything. Have a look at these verses and see how many times God, Paul uses the word all. The verses are, are littered with the word all and everything, aren't they? Six times in these four verses. All or everything. But Paul, do you mean everything? Everything, absolutely everything. What about the things that we don't really like and we wish weren't a part of our creation? Yes, all things on earth. What about things that aren't on our planet, Paul? Maybe that are trillions and trillions of miles away. Yes, things in heaven and on earth, i.e. all of creation. Well, what about things that we can't see? You know, like angels and spirits and, and demons and, and the, the, the devil. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. But not only that, he is the very purpose of creation. All things have been created through him and for him. It was all made for him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. When you walk through a park, 
now or in these past couple of weeks or so. And you look at the beautiful autumn trees and their different shades of yellow and orange and brown and red and purple. We gaze at them and we think, wow, you've made that so that I can see it and I can delight in you. But, but supremely, you've made it for your son. All of creation was created for Christ, for him to enjoy. John Piper writes in a little book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, the Hubble Space Telescope sends back infrared images of faint galaxies perhaps 12 billion light years away. The reason for, for wasting so much space on a universe to house a speck of humanity is to make a point about our maker and not us. The physical eye is meant to say to the spiritual eye, not this, but the maker of this is the desire of your soul. He is before all things. So he was there in the beginning, before anything else was made, which makes sense if he created everything, doesn't it? Just like the Apostle John writes in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John Piper writes again in his little book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. There had to be something that never came into being. Back, 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 we peer into, into endless ages, yet there never was nothing. Someone has the honor of being there first and always. And the answer is Christ. In him, all things hold together. God didn't just create everything and then leave it to get on with life by itself. All things hold together in him, which means that all of creation is, is kept going by him sustaining it. Just stop and think about that for a moment. That right now, Jesus Christ is sustaining the whole universe. He's sustaining you and me. He's giving me and you life and breath right now. He's sustaining all the creatures of the world, the spiders that are spinning their webs right now. Jesus Christ is sustaining absolutely everything. And the more we grasp this, the more easy it is to spot human philosophy and religion because that tends to put us at the center of everything, doesn't it? But the universe only really makes sense when we put Jesus at the center. He's supreme over all creation because he created it. He was there before it. He's the very purpose of it. And he holds it all together. But he's not just supreme over all creation. He's also supreme over the new creation, that is the church, all God's people who are born again. And this is what he explains in verses 18 to 20. He is the head of the body, the church. Paul describes the church, that's all Christians everywhere, as, as a body. That's one of his images to, uh, to explain it. In other words, in the same way that, that my head directs my body and, and gives it life, it's a source of life. If you cut off my head, then I die. I'm no doctor, but 
I believe that's true. So Jesus has authority over his body and he gives it life. What makes him supreme over the new creation? I think there are two reasons that Paul gives us in these verses. Resurrection and reconciliation. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Beginning and firstborn explain that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He was the first to know new resurrection life and so he's supreme over the new resurrection. As Peter preached in Acts 3, he's the the author of life. And there's something else that makes him supreme over the new creation. That's reconciliation. Have a look at verse 19. Paul begins with the word for. So he's giving a reason here. And what is this reason? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is supreme over the new creation because he's, he's reconciled all things to himself. How? Verse 20, he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. The one who's supreme over everything came not to show his power over everything, but to serve. He submitted himself to the cruelty of people. And he died so that he could reconcile all things to himself. And the next verse is explaining a bit more what that reconciliation means for Christians. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you through, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We were enemies of God. Paul describes it as enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Rather than us living as if God's the center as he should be, because he made everything, because everything's for him, because he sustains everything, we've lived as if we're the center of everything. We're mistakenly assuming that we're the point of it all. And then treating God as if he's just something that doesn't need to be a part of our world. We're the important ones. That's sin, isn't it? And our relationship with our maker was broken. But more than this, the relationship between the creator and the whole of creation was broken. It wasn't just us that needed reconciliation. It was all things in heaven and on earth. We tend to think of salvation as something that's between me and, and God. I sin, I need salvation, God forgives me when I repent. Which is true, isn't it? But salvation's more than that, at least according to what Paul is saying here. God came to reconcile all creation. I think instinctively, 
we all realize that the world is broken, don't we? Whether it's, it's looking at the natural disasters that, that cause such suffering, whether it's just the day-to-day weariness that we might feel in life, whether it's the cruelty and the injustice that maybe we've experienced or we, we just see played out all across the country, across the world. We, we realize that this world is not right. Something's broken. And what many probably don't understand is that the reason for it is that the creation is, is broken. It's, it's an enmity. It's an enemy of the one who made it. And until creation is, is reconciled with the one who made it, it will always be broken. John Piper writes, The ache in every human heart is an ache for this, for Jesus. Augustine, a Christian many hundreds, hundreds of years ago, wrote, once said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Only the one who is supreme over everything can reconcile everything. The only one who can deal with the brokenness in in all of creation was the one who made all of it in the first place. But for there to be reconciliation, both sides need to come to the table to reconcile, don't they? And who's going to represent creation? Who's going to be our champion? Who's going to represent us and all creation before the one who made everything? Can we find someone who we think is worthy to represent us? It's an absurd thought, isn't it? That there might be someone who could represent us before Creator. Who could stand at a table with God and talk about how we could get together and make things right again. We are all, every single human being, enemies of God, deserving His judgment. And we're not fit to sit at His table and and talk about how to make things right. And so God did what only God could. And his son became one of us so that he could represent us. He took on a physical body. Do you see that, that emphasis in verse 22? By Christ's physical body so that he could die in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve for our evil behavior. He dealt with the problem that existed because of our evil behavior our sin, the blemish that is on all of us, the accusation that we all feel because we know we're not right. He died for that so that we might be able to stand before this holy God as holy people. He died to make his enemies his friends. And so Paul wants us to know that this Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord, but not only the supreme Lord, but also the completely sufficient Savior. 
who has dealt with the problem that existed between all of creation and the Creator. He is all we need. That's what Paul wants the Colossian Christians and all the readers of this letter to know. He is all we need. The Colossians were in danger of being captured by by false human religion, by Christians probably in their church who wanted to combine other things into their religious experience. Some wanted to add some Jewish rules. Some wanted to add a, a particular mystical experience. But the result of adding those things in is that Jesus becomes smaller. If I'm adding something into my religious experience, then Jesus isn't all I need. Because this is also what I need as well. Jesus becomes smaller. And so at the start of this letter, Paul wants his readers to understand how big Jesus is. And as we grasp this more and more, we begin to see well, how pathetic all human philosophy and religion is. Maybe it's a bit like when experts try and spot forgeries. And apparently the best way if you're trying to spot a forgery is not to to learn about all the different kinds of forgeries there might be, but to know the real thing so well that when a forgery comes along, you know instinctively that it's a forgery. And when you hold in your hand a banknote that's not a genuine banknote, you know, I don't know, whether because of the feel or the smell of it or whatever it is, that it's not the real thing because you know the real thing so well. And maybe it's a bit like that, that Paul wants us to know the real thing so well. He wants us to know the one who is supreme Lord, the one who is completely sufficient Savior, so that when we come across other things that pretend to be little saviors and little lords that are going to help us on our way, we know that they're just rubbish. Now, you probably know these truths already, but they're truths that we need to keep reminding ourselves of again and again, aren't they? Because we live in the world, uh, we're surrounded by the ideologies, the philosophies of the world every day. It hits us, uh, no matter how hard we try, every day. And so we need to continually go to God's Word to see how big Jesus is is. We need to meditate on the Son's eternity. He's always been there. On His power, His majesty, His his lordship, and His supremacy over absolutely everything. All the forces on earth and in heaven, visible and invisible. We want to meditate on his, His reconciling incarnation how he took on a physical body because that's what we needed so that we could become friends with God. In our home, we sing this song by Sovereign Grace. Jesus, his word upholds the galaxies, but he babbled like a baby in his mother's arms. Jesus understands the universe but he had to go to school to learn how to write his name. Jesus walked upon the ocean blue, but his feet got tired and dirty too 
on the dusty roads. Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died, but his power brought him back to life when he called his name. He's totally God and totally man, both in one. He's the great I am. To save the world, fulfill God's plan. He had to be totally God, totally man. Jesus obeyed his Father perfectly. And we know that that's something you and me couldn't ever do. Jesus died to pay for all our sins, rose to save the ones who trust in him for eternity. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, totally God, totally man, who is supreme Lord over everything and is sufficient Savior, all that we need. Father, we are sorry that we do listen to the world so often. And we do believe it's lies. And we do think that we need to contribute things to our salvation. And we do envy those who have particular experiences. And we do feel judged if we don't obey particular rules. Because we don't know Jesus as we should. Father, help us to have a bigger view of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grasp these truths a little more day by day, that we might cling to him and not be captured by any human philosophy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us your own, even though we were enemies dead in our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much. It's great, isn't it, when we can see uh, Jesus in his words and how great and awesome he is. And the wonderful thing is he's a saviour, a God who has power over everything, and yet is the one who is our saviour. And we're going to finish with Nathan. He's going to lead us in worship as we consider what Christ has done and consider again who he is.
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen.